the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. He battled the talking heads and cynics in Washington to save GM and Chrysler. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He battled the Great Recession to save Michigan's capital city from bankruptcy. To this big, bold country that we love, that's what I see. That's the America I know. Now he's on a mission to save the America that brought his father from Italy and millions of immigrants to build the greatest nation in the world. And I do believe that the office of citizen is the highest office in this country. Here he is, America, Verge Bernero. Good afternoon. Happy December. Welcome to the Verge Bernero Show. Uh, we, it's going to be a great show. And... Um, it's Big Brain Day, so get ready. Big Brain. As it turns out, it's back to school day here on The Verge. We're going to have two professor guests after we hear from a slew of them uh, at the impeachment hearing. Uh, it is that time of year, uh, ho, 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 uh, impeachment time. Uh, <laughs> is that what you want Santa to bring you this year, Verge? Uh, that, I mean, he could bring me a conviction. I mean, the impeachment, I guess I'm stuck with. Um, yeah, that would be a tremendous gift. I just don't think it's going to, I just don't think it's going to come. Uh, so we are talking impeachment and the state of our union with two big brains, Harvard professor Stephen Levitsky, author of How Democracies Die, uh, and MSU, Michigan State University professor Matt Grossman, author of Red State Blues, uh, just recently out. Um, it's going to be a fascinating discussion. And uh, But before we get to the real brainiacs, I've got some things to say. And I'm going to make a bold prediction about Donald Trump's response to impeachment. What will Donald Trump's response be, other than what you've already heard? Mm -hmm. What will his real response be? Uh, what will the Senate do? And what is I'm going to tell you what it'll be. So, But you've got to stay through the podcast for that. I'd like to start with the clip. Uh, just to keep on this, Professor, and we're going to move fast, so, so try to keep up. Uh, this clip from CNN, which I think is a good synopsis, uh, at least from, from the legal side of, of the impeachment, what it's all about. On the basis of the testimony and the evidence before the House, President Trump has committed impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors by corruptly abusing the office of the presidency. What has happened in the case today is something that I do not think we have ever seen before. A president who has doubled down on violating his oath to faithfully execute the laws and to protect and defend the Constitution. I'm concerned about lowering impeachment standards to fit a paucity of evidence and an abundance of anger. I believe this impeachment not only fails to satisfy the standard of past impeachments, or would create a dangerous precedent for future impeachments. If what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created a constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. If the president uses his office for personal gain, the only recourse available under the Constitution is for him to be impeached because the president cannot be, as a practical matter, charged criminally while he is in office because the Department of Justice works for the president. So the only mechanism available for a president who tries to distort the electoral process for personal gain is to impeach him. That is why we have impeachment. The Constitution of the United States does not care. Okay, so three out of four uh, legal experts say Trump certainly can be impeached, should be impeached. And the one guy who says he shouldn't be impeached is the guy who 20 years ago was in favor of impeaching Clinton for lying about sex. 
uh, under oath. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, Turley has changed his mind about about uh, you know uh, impeachment at yeah. least at least in this case. Now, uh, Fox News legal expert Judge Andrew Napolitano says the evidence against Trump is clear and convincing, clearly impeachable. Let's hear from Napolitano. An agenda which had the Ukrainians trying to do something against the president's political opponent. And while he pushed that agenda, he held up $391 million in aid. The congressman is free to say that that's not impeachable, and the Democrats are it's free to say it white, is impeachable. Right? It's not black and white. In my view, it is clearly impeachable because it involves two potential crimes. The crime of bribery, which Congressman Buck uh, just uh, mentioned, which is defined as the failure to do an official act, release the 391 million until a favor comes your way announce not conduct an investigation announce the existence of an investigation uh, of joe biden the other crime is asking for campaign aid from a foreign national that is a crime in and of itself just asking they're free to say that that's not an impeachable offense but they're not free to say it didn't happen because the evidence that it happened uh, is overwhelming well some of them Okay, so you know, look, we know what he did. The facts are not in dispute. Trump's put up no effort to to even fight this in the House. Democrats obviously are pushing forward with the courageous and perilous mission, courageous but perilous mission of impeaching President Donald Trump. I am convinced that House Democrats are motivated by conviction, duty, and patriotism rather than political or partisan concerns. I've seen the anguish on their faces of the Democratic House members. They do not enjoy this. Uh, I think some of them really are worried that it may boomerang politically. I think that they're trying to do the right thing. I really do. But politics uh, is the name of the game that the Republicans and Trump are playing. Okay, I really believe that the Democrats are motivated uh, uh, by trying to do the right thing. And I think a number of them think it it may even backfire, but they believe they're constitutionally bound to do it. The Democrats will have their say and sway in the House. But the final verdict will come in the Senate, dominated by highly partisan Republicans who are in lockstep with Trump and show no sign of defection. Now, I could have played clip after clip after clip, but because I have two excellent professors, two excellent guests, I, I, I had to make room. But I could have played you multiple clips of Republican legislators. Just know this is the space where multiple clips of Republican legislators, House and Senate, would go. And you've seen them, whether it's John Kennedy from Louisiana or uh, or Cruz from Texas. They're all just mimicking the same thing. They are in lockstep. There is no defection. This will be an impeachment trial in the Senate like no other. And Trump's victory dance after the all but guaranteed vindication, courtesy of Moscow Mitch McConnell and his Mitchettes, will also be outrageous and unprecedented. This will be like none other. There is virtually zero chance that Senate Republicans will step up, rise above party and personal politics, and do the right thing in today's polarized political ecosystem. Now, we're going to hear from Donald Trump at his recent rally in Pennsylvania in just a couple seconds. Despite the obvious misdeeds of Trump and his amigos, they even called him the three amigos. Uh, The impeachment will likely backfire politically, despite the Democrats' best intentions. Good deeds are not always rewarded in politics.
Now, I'm not saying that Trump can't be defeated in 2020, but what I'm saying is this is not going to help the Democrats' case, despite the fact that they, I believe, are correct and doing the right thing and their constitutional duty, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking about politics, folks. Let's face it. This is an entirely predictable victory that is being handed to Trump by House Democrats, and it pains me to say it. Senate and House Republicans are goose-stepping in formation to Trump's narrative. This is what they do. This is how they roll. Trump and Republicans' propaganda machine is already in full swing, in overdrive, trumpeting the familiar talking points of witch hunt, Russia hoax, fake news, and much worse, even referring to brave men and women of the FBI as human scum. That's Trump talking. Uh, I predict that Trump's bold counteroffensive to become will become even more strident during and immediately after his victorious Senate trial. Let's hear what he's saying now. And again, we haven't even started the real victory uh, victory uh, dance. But while we're delivering historic victories for the American people, the radical left Democrats and the failed Washington establishment are trying to erase your votes nullify the election and overthrow our democracy. Not going to happen. Don't worry about it. I wouldn't lose too much sleep over it. And I have to say this about the Republicans. The Republicans, and you have a lot of great ones here tonight, your congressmen. You have a lot of great ones. These congressmen are great. Uh, the Republicans have never been so united as they are right now, ever. The House, the Senate, we've never been this united. because You hear what he's saying? I mean, have you ever seen, when was the last time you saw Trump look that relaxed? I don't believe that's put on. I think the guy senses that he's winning, winning, folks, uh, because the Repu- he has the Senate Republicans in lockstep. Look, I, if, I don't know. If this was something that the House could do, like censure, you know, there was a congresswoman who said that we should do censure and just mm-hmm. keep investigating and don't do the article. And she was right. Because censure, you can say it's a slap on the wrist, slap on the hand, but it's a slap that the House can deliver without anybody else. Impeachment cannot be delivered, and it will not be delivered. And in fact, not only will impeachment, it will be a ridiculous trial. It will be no trial at all. Trump will be, quote unquote, vindicated. The trial, the verdict will be not guilty. And he will, the victory dance will be unlike, people are. People make the mistake of comparing this impeachment to other impeachments. They compare Trump to other presidents. Uh, he is not going to follow convention. We're going to talk about this with the authors, he, 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 with these professors. He is not going to follow the norms. And uh, he, he can't. so given Trump's unpredictable and often bizarre behavior, it is worth considering what his response to a quick and decisive victory in the Senate is likely to be. Some folks would take a day or two off to rest, do a victory lap or two and move on. Trump will press his advantage and use the perceived vindication to help catapult him to a 2020 victory. That's his plan. That's the Roy Cohn model. Roy Cohn was his lawyer, the the lawyer to the mob. You kick people when they're down. You don't kick people until they're down. You kick them when they're down. That is the Trump model. And he will try to parlay this into something much more. Mark my words. And that leads to my major prediction. And I know I got to go because we've got to, we've got to bring on 
Professor Stephen Levitsky, professor of political science at Harvard University. But I just got to get it out that Trump knows he can't win a fair election in 2020. The numbers aren't there. If the Democrats are able to turn up the numbers like they did with Obama, he's done. Okay, His high watermark was reached in, in, in uh, 2016 with the help of Putin. Now, Putin may be there again in 2020, but the numbers are going to be against him. The numbers just aren't there if Dems get out in Obama-style turnout. Trump will need a plan B. And plan B is dirty tricks, voter suppression, and foreign interference. That will be the rule of the day. Intimidation, you name it, whatever it takes. His stormtroopers will get the message to get her done at all costs. And just know that Papa Trump has your back. Papa Trump will be there. He gives out pardons like candy to his loyal foot soldiers. And so I am predicting on the program today that on the day after the Senate vindication, that Trump will be exercising his presidential pardon powers. Now, some people believe, many pundits believe, that he won't be really issuing pardons to those people that have been locked up because of the Mueller investigation, that he won't do that until after the campaign. I, right here today, am predicting that he will do this as part of his victory dance, that he will use the power, he will use the momentum from the victory and say, now that we know that Pelosi and that this witch hunt, now we know that it was all a big hoax. And these poor people rotting in prison, these great Americans like Flynn and Manafort, and he will release them and he will do it now. And why would he do it now instead of later? Because he wants to send the message to the Trump loyalists, to the foot soldiers, the ones that he needs to do whatever it takes in 2020. He needs them to do whatever it takes to win in 2020 but he, because he can't win a fair election. And he needs them to know that no matter what they do, no matter what norms, no matter what rules, no matter what laws that they violate, no matter what the convictions are, no matter what the charges are, Donald Trump will have their backs. So look out. You heard it here first. Now I'd like to welcome to the program Professor Stephen Levitsky, professor of political science at Harvard University and author of one of the finest books I've ever read, How Democracies Die. Professor Levitsky, are you there? Yes. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you're very busy. Uh, is it is it snowing there in Boston? Got a little snow yesterday, but not not today. Okay. Well, you you can you, you can have it. Good. I'm glad you're having a good day. But we we don't have much on the ground here in Michigan, but I'm sure it's coming. Um, so you wrote this book. Uh, what about a year ago? Two years ago. Two years ago. And uh, wow, it's I feel like it's so current. Um, but I wanted to get right into it with you. Um, I, I got to, I haven't finished the book, but I got to uh, chapter eight, which is nearing the back, where you, it's called Trump Against the Guardrails. And you say that President Trump, quote, President Trump exhibited clear authoritarian instincts during his first year in office. In chapter four, we presented three strategies by which elected authoritarians seek to consolidate power, capturing the referees, sidelining the key players and rewriting the rules to tilt the playing field against opponents. Trump attempted all three of these strategies. And then you get into that and you talk about his attacks on the press. Uh, you use the term elected authoritarians. Is Donald Trump an elected authoritarian? Does he fit that bill, and why? Um, I would say yes and no. There, I think there's no question that, and Trump has shown this over and over again since he became president, that he is uh, an authoritarian figure. He has authoritarian instincts. His, his uh, treatment of opponents and critics as traitors 
his uh, desire, he doesn't always been successful, but his desire to use law enforcement agencies to investigate and punish his rivals is classic authoritarian behavior. Well, what about I wouldn't call this? I would not call the United States electoral authoritarian the way that, say, Hungary or Turkey is, because Trump has faced a lot of pushback. Our institutions are pretty strong. The opposition is pretty strong, and so Trump has thrown many more punches than he's landed. Yeah, right. Okay, so so his attempts. The question is, what what's in his heart? What would he really like to do? We saw those campaign rallies early on where he acted in ways that, I mean, were just really beyond the pale for many Americans. I thought that that would really do him in. I mean, the way he would he would when somebody would shout up, and we and we all politicians have been heckled. I've been heckled, um, and yet never have I said I might have thought it, uh, but never have I said, yeah, get him out of here. You know, uh, you know, punch him. You know, he should be beaten up. Uh, so, so those are, those are kind of authoritarian early signs, right, during his campaign? Oh, absolutely. The condoning violence, uh, uh, tolerating violence, condoning violence is a classic feature of authoritarian figures. Now, uh, you also speak to Now, I was surprised that people uh, put up with it. And I think in your book, you referenced McCain's um, uh, concession speech. And I remembered that speech when I read it in your book, where McCain, I, I watched the speech in real time, where McCain conceded to Obama. And when he started to say, we should work with Obama, and I think you referenced it in the book, he started to say, it's over, you know, and, and, and we should work with Obama to, for a better America. We should, you know, we're all Americans. And, and at the name, of Obama, he start, there were boos. Yeah. And, and, and you say that that was unusual. And I, and I thought at the time, boy, that's really terrible. And he, he, he corrected them and he said, no, 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 we've got to, we're all Americans. But there's a level of divisiveness now. And you referenced that on page 167 in The Unraveling. And you say, over the last quarter century, Democrats and Republicans have become much more than just two competing parties, sorted into liberal and conservative camps. Their voters are now deeply divided by race, religion, belief, geography, and even, quote, way of life. Are we forever polarized then? Are we headed? Where are we headed with this? I hear, I hear other professors say that we're more polarized today than at any time since the Civil War. Is that where we're headed? I think we're more polarized today than any time since the period of Reconstruction, the decades after the Civil War, which are also really polarized. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's what's going on today. That's why um, Trump can get, away, can, can get away with the kind of behavior that he's gotten away with, the kind of rhetoric that in the past would have been rejected, now there are, the two camps are so far apart that we're willing to tolerate all kinds of egregious behavior on our own side because it's better than the other side. Just one, one data point. In, in exit polls in 2016, one out of four Trump voters, 25% of people who pulled the lever for Donald Trump said in the exit poll they didn't think Donald Trump was fit for the office of the presidency. So one out of four Trump voters didn't think he was fit to be president, and yet they still preferred him to Hillary Clinton. Now That's how polarized we are. There's so many things that went into that, and you know, your book talks about the uh, how the two parties have become more homogeneous uh, and less diverse. No, one of them has. Uh, amongst them, well, well, but I mean, even Democrats. We used to have blue dog, more blue dog true, Democrats, true, yeah. southern de- southern Democrats. So now those southern Democrats, like Zell Miller of Georgia, used to be a Democrat. You know, they've moved over. The the the, the lines are more clear. So the uh, so then we can't relate as much to to them. We're not we're not perhaps as tolerant. And then of course a lot of things have happened with the news, where people have their own news, their own news channels that agree with them, and so on. Uh, 
So how can we get to the point? How to, uh, y- your book talks about, I think, that you can't really fight fire with fire, that you're not going to, I guess, you know, sort of like Gandhi, um, that, that how can we get to a point of more mutual understanding and tolerance? My own view is that the, the Republicans represent a particularly combustible coalition right now. They basically represent um, white Protestants, white Christians, who used to be an overwhelming majority in this country, and who used to be on top of every hierarchy, political, economic, cultural, social, that you can think of. That inevitably, that's been changing for half a century. That change is not going to stop. But the, the loss of, of a group social dominance is really threatening. It can feel like an existential threat. Many Republican voters, not all of them, many Republican voters feel like the country they grew up in is being taken away from. And that's really yeah. threatening. Yeah, that's a very good point. And he voices and, that. He voices their angst. Now, and he, he voices that perfectly. The thing is, the Republicans are homogeneously white Christian today. Um, they're, as, as, as Trump himself said, they're very, very unified today. It's true. I want to. I want to. The ask one you. thing that will change our polarization, that will reduce our polarization, is for the Republicans to reshuffle the deck, for them to expand their coalition. That but could of course, mean going people, back but to of course, being a pro-business party and but, uh, welcoming back. But you the, know, uh, the suburbs that they've lost, Orange but, County. But as Republicans, have tr- Republicans, Professor, um, as Republicans have tried that, like the big tent stuff. Uh, like Kasich, Kasich from Ohio, where they've tried to be more friendly on women's issues, minority issues, gay rights, you know, LGBT issues. It seems like they just end up being more retro, uh, you know, and being pulled right back uh, with the religious right and so on. Republicans are going to have to overcome that. And it's only going to happen if and when they get some electoral spanking. I mean, they're going to have to get drugged electorally. Uh, parties change their strategy when they lose. So I want to ask you about. As long as they keep winning, they're not going to change. If you have time, if you have four more, four or five more minutes, I want to ask you about something that I think is a dangerous trend. And but I want you to reassure me and tell me I'm crazy and I'm worried about something that I shouldn't be. When I see Trump reaching down into the bowels of the military and picking out GIs who he feels have been wronged. Uh, through the disciplinary process and giving them back their medals and undoing, you know, convictions, issuing pardons. And I know there are three, one he's done and two he's looking at closely, where even uh, loss of life is involved. Charges that have been uh, that have caused caused these folks to lose rank or to be jailed. Um, and I see him disrespect generals and the top brass and even mispronounce the name, calling the defense secretary Esperanto and never apologizing for it. I see what I sense. Now, some people don't pay any attention to it, but I add two plus two and maybe I'm getting five or six. But I see a pattern where he wants to and he's good at connecting with the average bloke on the street. And he cares more about that. And he seems to show a, an irreverence, whereas before he used to talk about my generals, my generals. Now he's dissed the generals, whether it's Kelly, McMaster, uh, Mattis, of course, famously, his feud with Mattis. And he seems to be really building this connection to the average GI, saying they're the ones I care about. And to me, I can't help. Maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, but this this concerns me. I think, why would a president be so concerned, so disrespectful of the top brass, and yet so concerned, apparently, about the frontline troops? It's almost like he's trying to form a bond with the frontline troops, should he need them. Now, Please tell me I'm worried about something I shouldn't be. Or is this an authoritarian technique? Well, it's an authoritarian instinct in that Trump in, come, comes to the—he he sees all institutions of the state 
um, the, the bureaucracy with the army, the police, the judiciary, any institution of the state, he sees as an extension of him. He thinks he should be able to control it and do with it what he sees fit. Like he's like doing his in own the ju- private company. Like he's doing that's in the not just- the way a democracy works. That's not how the United States works. That's certainly not how the U.S. military works. But but little by little, but like that's a- how he that's how he sees the world. He wants to be able. He can't imagine the idea of somebody within the state, within the army, within the judiciary, within the attorney general's office, within the FBI, the CIA, not carrying out his orders on the spot. And, and that's why so, that's why Comey was fired, and that's why he couldn't, right, right, right. He so couldn't stand really Jeff Sessions. This is a really authoritarian instinct. I think the, the, the optimistic take, or the, the way I would uh, maybe talk you off the cliff, is that the Army is, is really upset about this. This is not the way the Army works. The Army is a really effective institution. It's a very disciplined institution, and they are going to, they're going to resist this. I mean, they can't openly confront the president. But I think it's going to be very, very difficult for Trump, um, given that he's not very savvy, he's not very disciplined, he's not very popular, to make much headway within the military. I think that the military, just like with McCarthy half a century ago, I think the Army will win this one. I pray to God you're right, but I, we've never had a president. We've never seen this at the presidential level. Now, if you, Not in a very long time. So so if you have a little bit more time, if, if I have you until the, th- the, th- the 3-0 mark, uh, then I would ask you about my, uh, my uh, prediction. My gut tells me that uh, he will be vindicated. He will be found not guilty by the Senate and that he will take a huge victory lap and he will try to take the momentum from that. And I believe he will at that time issue the pardons uh, of those that were convicted under the, by Mueller uh, and get his friends out of jail because I believe he needs that to send a message to his followers that the law, that he is the law. And that, therefore, they must go above and beyond in 2020 to win. And if that means pulling over van loads of voters on Election Day by sheriffs who support him or whatever it may take, like in Georgia against Stacey Abrams, whatever the case may be, uh, you know his his shock troops, his ground troops will know by these pardons. It'll be more than just talk. It'll be proof that he stands behind them. And so my prediction is that he will issue those pardons, and he may even pardon his family and Giuliani prospectively, just as President Ford pardoned Nixon prospectively. He had not been charged or convicted with anything when he was pardoned. So the, the, the presidential pardon is a clear, legal, very strong power that the president has. And I believe he will do it soon after he is vindicated by the Senate. Have you yeah, an I've opinion? Been to that. I, mean, I, I think you're right about Trump's instincts. When Trump feels like he has just won, like he's just prevailed or been vindicated, he very often uh, doubles down and, 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 and acts very aggressively. That, but he also makes mistakes. He often overreaches when he does that. When, uh, I mean, as soon as it was clear that the Mueller investigation was going nowhere, that's, that's when Ukraine happened. That's when the Ukrainian phone call happened. So it's very possible that, that Trump will behave in exactly the way that you predict, but that he'll overreach. Yeah. And then he'll make a mistake. Yes. And then he'll shoot himself in the foot and it'll end up costing him electorally well, rather than helping him. Yeah, I appreciate that, Professor. And the whole thing is risky business. There's no question. But he's a man who thrives on risk. And he, he said that in one of his uh, statements lately, uh, a few weeks ago. He said something about, yeah, it's chaotic. I thrive on, on that. You know, I, and, and I think he doesn't part of think him, about the effects on our institutions. I, oh, absolutely. Well, that as a narcissistic loon, he doesn't care. It's he can't. He, he I'm not sure he has the capacity. It's all related to these things are all related to him. Just as you said, the, these these state institutions, they're an extension of him. 
and 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 when people get in his way and the sad reality I'm, I'm hoping that like you say that the military and other professionals I mean we saw those incredible professional professionals Vinman Yovanovitch uh, all the all those uh, the, the folks that stood up uh, the, the professionals in the in the uh, State Department career diplomats what he calls the deep state I call it a deep state of patriotism and I'm hoping that people will get your book how democracies die to understand uh, that this can happen and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you I guess I mean I, I'd like you to say it can happen here because Americans believe that we are Teflon, Professor. They believe, yeah, Hitler, yeah. that was then. You know, yeah, these little podunk democracies, these banana republics, blah, blah, blah. But you point out in the book things that I'd never really thought about. I mean, I myself, growing up and even serving in politics, you know, as a state senator, as a mayor, you, you grow up believing in the Constitution, reading the Constitution, and you, and you, and you think it's, it's it's just strong, like like the iron girders of the, of the country. And you don't realize the extent to which a lot of what we think is the law is really protocol and practice and tradition and norms and he is busting through all of that yeah no he's showing for example he's showing that if the if the president wants to he can ignore congressional oversight and that's that was or, unprecedented that for a president to just yeah, say yeah it's it's a witch hunt I'll talk to you later i'm not and i'm so not giving Trump, you any documents i'm not i'm not testifying none of my people are testifying screw you basically big big uh, one finger salute to the to the <laughs> congress so think about what that means. It might be that democracy doesn't die under Trump's watch. Uh, our democratic institutions are pretty strong. We do have people within the civil service that are pushing back. We have a strong opposition. Democracy may well survive Trump, but Trump has just set a precedent. He's just busted a norm, and he set a precedent for somebody who may be more savvy, more talented, more popular than Trump to do it in the future. He's just made it a lot easier for the next autocrat. I mean, but, but Professor, what do, yes, but what do you say to these Republican senators? Where, where are the John McCain's? I mean, other than Romney, they're all just mouthing this bullshit. And this is why I this is why I believe he'll do the pardons. And this is why I truly do fear for our democracy, because I don't see any small D Democrats standing up and saying, we took an oath to the Constitution. And Mr. President, you know, we're not going to say Heil, Heil Trump. We're not going to say it. I watched one congressman in, in an interview when he was asked and he said, well, they said, aren't you worried that you're going to lower the bar? What you just said, aren't you worried that you're going to lower the bar? What would you say if a Democrat comes in and does these things? And the guy said, this Republican legislator, he said, well, Trump is unique. Trump is unique. Basically, we need to just make room for Trump because he's different. Yeah, that doesn't work. Look, this is one thing that we got wrong in the book. We wrote in the book that we expected that there would be a group of senators led by McCain. Obviously, we didn't anticipate his illness. But we figured there'd be a group of senators, Republican senators, that would draw a line uh, on Trump's behavior, and that has disappeared. There will be right. There will be no senators. And so when we have you back, if you if you should come back in the next few weeks, I'd love to have you back, and I want you to work with your your partner. Um, Professor uh, Ziblatt, or whoever you want, and come back and, and you know after you've do, noodled on it and and tell us that since they're not coming, my question is the old Al Gore thing. What is the controlling legal authority that will stop Trump? Because this impeachment, I'm afraid, is boomerang. I'm afraid it's it's going to backfire. It's certainly not. I don't think it's going to help the Democrats. I think they'd have been better off with censure. And that and that means I was wrong because I was one early on calling for impeachment, but I could see that it wasn't working. And and I was hoping that uh, Nancy, who's been masterful, that uh, Nancy Pelosi would turn course and just do the censure as uh, our, our local congresswoman here suggested. But I'd like to have you back and and say since there is apparently no legal control uh, controlling legal authority that I can see. 
what ultimately will, if he continues to violate the Constitution, uh, at what point, you know, you know, might these senators change their mind, or, or you know, where are we? So maybe you can come hopefully, back and get, yeah, get... Hopefully the test won't be on Election Day when Trump refuses to accept the results of the election. Yes, you're right. Hopefully we'll figure it out before then. Amen to that. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you and your partner's great work on, on uh, how democracies die. And Thanks for let's having hope me on. this one doesn't. Thank you so much. Take care. Happy Take care. holidays. Bye bye. Uh, so that was uh, Professor Levitsky, author of How Democracies Die. And um, as he said, let's hope we get to this one mm-hmm. before that happens. Uh, now, I warned you that it was a heavy, uh, pointy head day. Uh, so put your thinking caps on. And uh, get ready. We heard from the professors uh, on video. We've heard from uh, one from Harvard. And now we have Michigan State University's um, director of the Institute for Public Policy. Oh, we're going to have a break. And when we come back. Yes. Thank you, Andy. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Professor Matt Grossman, uh, director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and author of Red State Blues. Stay with us. I'll tell you what happened. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. Well, your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. And welcome back to the Virgin Bonero Show. Uh, it is uh, a day to wear your thinking cap, uh, and uh, we are learning about impeachment. We're learn- learning about uh, politics. And now we're going to be joined by Professor Matt Grossman, Associate Pro- Pro- Professor of Political Science and Director of the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State, author of Red State Blues. Uh, Professor Grossman, are you there? Yeah, it's good to be with you. Well, thank you so much. Great to have you. I don't know if you had a chance to listen in on any of what's been said so far, um, but uh, we talked a little bit about impeachment, which I know your book was not about, um, but of course this is happening. Uh, so let's uh, talk about your your book and your theory. Uh, I know for a while um, there was talk about states as laboratories of democracy. And a lot of things were happening there uh, in the states. Has the center of political gravity, is it shifting back to Washington from the states, do you think? Uh, Do you get into that at all? Or is the state still where the action is? 
Well, the federal government uh, certainly has a lot to say about uh, what the states can do um, and incentivizes the states to, to take certain actions. Um, that doesn't mean we don't still have policy trends that come from the states themselves. Um, for example, we're seeing nearly all states uh, invest in early childhood education right now. We're seeing nearly all states uh, moving from a more punitive criminal justice uh, policy to a less punitive one. So there are still these state trends. Um, um, but we've also seen a lot led by the federal government, like, uh, of course, Medicaid expansion um, and even some of the education trends in the states um, were really incentivized by Obama's Race to the Top uh, initiative. So, so some, some of, those of the biggest changes in the states uh, were led by the federal government, uh, but a few still come uh, from the states themselves. And some of those Obama-era things are still spinning. Now, the basic, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, but the main, the basic theory of your book is that uh, even though Republicans have uh, scored some victories, a lot of victories, perhaps at the state level with state houses, uh, uh, governor uh, elections and legislatures, you tracked the actual policies. Uh, and you're saying that there has not been a seismic shift toward right, right-leaning policies along with these Republican victories at the state level, Right. Right. Republicans went from controlling only three state governments in 1992 to controlling 26 before last year's uh, election. Uh, they went in the average state from controlling about 40 percent of the legislature to controlling 60 percent. So it was this huge political shift. Um, but if you start to look at the policy changes, um, you find that they kind of slowed the growth of government, um, but but did not reverse it. Um, the average state uh, doubled its uh, spending over that. Uh, period, uh, and is still passing uh, more liberal laws than conservative laws by most conventional definitions. And then in the places where there were the biggest conservative shifts, um, like Kansas, uh, there was a backlash, uh, not just uh, by legislators themselves, but also uh, by uh, the public and protests, um, and some of the most uh, severe changes were reversed. I was going to ask you about Kansas, so you you, uh, (laughs) preempted me. Um, So is this Professor, doesn't uh, doesn't this come back to that? You know, the old Tip O'Neill uh, many years ago said all politics is local. Uh, since then, now some pundits are saying all politics is national because of the polarization. But at the state and local level, and of course, you know, I've served in the legislature and been a mayor. Uh, I know I had, as a Democrat, I had a lot of Republicans that voted for me, uh, if I'm to believe what they say, and I do, uh, to my face. You know, like as mayor, we don't run on a partisan basis even. And people don't so much care when it comes down to are the roads I'm driving on drivable? Uh, are the streets plowed? Is the garbage picked up? Uh, it seems like in those regards, you, you got to deliver. And that's what people are going to vote on. And whether you're Democrat or Republican, if you're not delivering, if you're not educating the kids, if you're not picking up the garbage, the voters catch on to that a little quicker at that state and local level, maybe, than some of these issues that are more esoteric being debated in, in the halls of Washington. Well, politics is definitely nationalizing, and even in state legislative elections, for for example, um, the impact of your view of the president is ten times the view, the impact of your view of how state government is going or the state legislature. So we really do have these nationalized elections uh, where uh, people vote up or down on the party of the president, uh, but. 
there are circumstances in which people see uh, the effects of state policy, and that's particularly pronounced when there are cuts to services. We don't have this option in most states of just cutting taxes and putting it on the credit card. Um, so when there are tax cuts, there are also service cuts, uh, and we saw that vividly uh, with the seven states that had teacher walkouts or threatened teacher walkouts, uh, where uh, people saw the circumstances in their local schools um, and every state that had those walkouts uh, responded to it uh, with some change in policy in direction in the direction of the teachers, including uh, a couple of tax increases. Uh, so there are still the capacity to, to have a state-specific backlash uh, among voters. You know, you raise a very good point, Professor Grossman. I, this issue of the deficit spending, and of course I've experienced this directly in my city, uh, in the city of Lansing, when revenue went down during the Great Recession, you know we're, we are immediately impacted like by that, uh, like cities and townships uh, all over. Uh, like you said, the the budget has to be balanced immediately on an annual basis, and so when the when the floor gets knocked out. Uh, we, we faced drastic cuts. In fact, I was the first mayor in the history of the city that had to actually uh, have layoffs of uh, emergency personnel, police and fire. I was the first mayor in Lansing's history, and I, I did live to tell about it. I was reelected afterward. Um, we ended up passing a millage specifically dedicated to law enforcement uh, and to fire, which people voted for because, and I'm sure a lot of Republicans voted for it because they understood that there's no place else to go. That that if you want the this this service, here's what it costs, and we are very transparent about it. Uh, whereas at the federal level, uh, that stuff seems to you know the de the deficit continues to grow, uh, uh, the debt uh, every year, and um, you know I remember during I remember right after 9/11 when George Bush uh, when President Bush came forward with his plan to create the Department of Homeland Security, and I remember you know as a patriotic American and and Democrat, I was expecting his speech to talk about what it was going to cost. And I was prepared as a Democrat to support that and say, you know what, it's going to cost money. We're all going to have to pay to be safe. And he never did. And I guess it was just subsumed into the deficit. And I think that, to me, that's a sickness in our politics that people get the idea that uh, a lot of people think that it's just going to, you know, just don't worry about it. They just, just give me what I want and, uh, and, you know, wor and, and worry about it later. And so people, I, I think we, we, we do send the wrong message uh, politically to folks. I don't know how you fix that. Well, there is a long-running pattern where people, of course, want uh, more services and and less uh, paying for it. Um, and we're you know we're seeing that in Michigan as we speak. People want the roads fixed, but they don't want to pay a gas tax. Um, it would have been a whole lot uh, faster to solve if uh, the state could have just uh, uh, borrowed the money completely to make uh, to make that happen. But of course, that would have created uh, long-term difficulties. Um, there's also though another long-running pattern that um, affects Republicans specifically, and that is that. Uh, people tend to be conservative in broad terms. They say they want a small government that does less, um, but they're often quite liberal in specific terms. They they want a government that does less, except they want more funding for education, more for health care, more for p police, etc. They say they want less regulation, um, except they want more environmental protection, more consumer protection, etc. So that means Republicans can kind of sell this broader vision on the campaign trail, but but when they have to put it into practice, it's deeply unpopular. So are you saying, Professor Grossman, that uh, we're a little bit sort of politically schizophrenic? We, we, we want... We are, and in... 
Yeah, and in that specific way that, um, you know, we tend to agree with conservatives in broad terms, but agree with liberals when it comes down to specific policies. So, and you brought up the governor's race or the, the, the roads in Michigan. I mean, we had a governor in Michigan that ran, I mean, literally, like her main message was, I think it was fix the damn roads. Mm-hmm. Fix the damn roads. The, the dam. I mean, fix the damn roads. Uh, maybe fix the dam, too, in the roads. <laughs> but, but, so she runs on this. She wins handedly. And yet, uh, at the legislative level, we have Republicans uh, and maybe maybe some Democrats. She put forward a plan that that fixed them, and and it cost money. It was going to cost, I think, you know, some forty forty plus cents on the gallon uh, for gas, uh, and that has not happened yet. There there is no comprehensive road plan, uh, and I guess where she's winding down on her first year in office. It is. Now, some other states uh, did manage to pass uh, gas tax increases uh, for roads. And, of course, Michigan, um, under Governor Snyder, um, he, he sort of did a maybe a better job of hiding the uh, tax increase, but there, but there was one. Uh, so it's possible that they'll reach uh, some, some consensus later. But uh, certainly having the, the fundamental problem of people like services but don't like to pay for them is, is a long-running problem for policymakers. Right. You know, I'm reminded, Professor Grossman, when I was in college, uh, my political science professor, Ken Ross, uh, to get out of there um, and to get my degree in political science, uh, a BA, um, I had to, we had to write a, a political philosophy paper. And uh, he said that it's going to be a minimum of 20 pages. He said it could be more, but it's going to be a minimum of 20. And he made us, and he would, he would give it back to us with a bunch of red marks if there were inconsistencies. So he, he said, you're going to come up with, you will leave this class with a consistent political philosophy. And so that you couldn't say, well, you're, pro cho- you're pro-life over here, anti-abortion, but you're, pro, uh, so you're, you're pro-capital uh, punishment over here. Okay, if you, so people did that, and he'd say, "Well, is it the sanctity of life?" Blah blah blah. Explain this, and he'd give it back to you, and you'd have to keep giving it back, give it back. So, like you said, if people said, "Well, low taxes," I want low taxes, and I want everything to work good, they'd give it back to you. So maybe more Americans need to, you know, have you or Ken Ross uh, write out their consistent political philosophy, so we can make progress in this country. Well, uh, the policy positions are becoming a little bit more associated over time, um, but so people's you know position on one issue is a little bit more consistent with their opinions on others than it used to be, uh, mainly because the parties are consistent and sending consistent messages. Um, but uh, there are still a lot of people with with contradictory uh, opinions, and one way that that works out is that uh, the public tends to react against the direction of policy making. So under President Obama, the public was moving in a conservative direction. Under President Trump, the public is moving in a liberal direction. And so the public kind of looks out and says, well, I, I might have I said I wanted that, but this is uh, too much, uh, and they want to point us in the other direction. And that's one mechanism for why we see a big backlash in uh, midterm elections, in the first midterm election of the, of the president. And it's also been a problem for uh, Republicans in the states, because they mainly came to power in 1994 and 2010 uh, on those backlashes uh, to Democratic presidents, um, but they faced 
uh, policy arena in which uh, they were incentivized uh, by the federal government to be moving in a liberal direction. So Medicaid expansion being the obvious uh, example uh, there under under President Obama. So because our national and state trends sometimes run in, in opposite directions in those midterm elections, it's harder uh, for a party to move policy in its direction. So we have to wrap it up. I really appreciate this time. I want to ask you one more question. So, so would your research would you say, Professor, that uh, at the state level, and, and, and you know maybe you sort of said this, but I I wanted to make sure get some clarity. Uh, would you say that at the state level, uh, be it a Democrat or a Republican, that governors more are going to be judged on what they deliver? That that in fact you have to deliver more than being in Congress uh, or maybe I don't know president. Well, uh, there, there is a tradition where um, uh, even Tea Party Republican governors uh, tend to moderate a little bit uh, when they when they get into power and they start uh, realizing they have to uh, maintain the government, they have to respond to lawsuits, they have to respond to legislators and the public, um, and so they sort of see that responsibility. And when they don't uh, meet the public's concerns, they're often the one who's blamed, and we just saw that uh, uh, in this year's uh, election where Matt Bevin... Uh, uh, who had uh, gone up against the teachers, uh, lost an election in which all the other Republicans won down the ballot by more than 10 points <laughs> different from him. So uh, you get the specific blame uh, when you when you don't uh, actually uh, deliver what the public wants. It seems like there's less less place to hide at the at the state and local level. Whereas in Washington, you've got the president blaming Congress, uh, the House blaming the Senate, the Senate blaming the House, blah, blah, blah. Now, they may end up all getting all the bums thrown out. But at the local, at that state level, uh, probably a little easier for people to follow it and, and, and hold somebody accountable. Well, maybe I think for the governor, but the legislature uh, now, you know, the basically Republican legislators are tied to what Trump is doing, just like Democratic legislators are tied to what Obama did, even though they had not not much to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the legislatures still, you know, run in these national partisan elections sometimes, and that that means it takes quite a bit, a pretty major scandal, uh, to to break through that that basic partisan vote in the legislature. Uh, but for governors, you see a bit more. Uh, a bit more deviation. Well, I uh, look forward to uh, actually reading all the all of your book. But in, in, by the time we talk again, the book is Red State Blues: How the Conservative Revolution Stalled in the States by Professor Matt Grossman of Michigan State University. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Happy holidays. We're going to take a break, uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what's kind of cool. Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. I'll tell you what happened. Good day, Morty. I got the Szechuan sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original blue Power Ranger. Nobody promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. Well, your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. 
Welcome back to the Verge Bernero Show. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, Andy, but uh, it came across my news feed, and now I can't find it, about this uh, famous international swimmer mm-hmm. uh, who decided to swim through the Pacific Garbage Patch. Huh, I did not see that. But, you know, that's a great way to raise awareness for all the pollution in, right. in our, our oceans and, and I think seas. That's and what, I think that's what he's trying We've heard about this. There's an Atlantic garbage patch and a Pacific garbage patch. Now, this Pacific garbage patch that this guy uh, swam through is the size of uh, twice the state of Texas. Oh, my goodness. Now, imagine, imagine uh, a blob in the ocean twice i mean i guess if it was the size of maine we could say you know call me back when it's the size of texas you know then because the ocean after all is so big but when you think about two texases in the pacific that's now that's a lot of crap i wonder what percentage that's covering that's got to be a lot that's it's unbelievable texas is huge so exactly so he describes and there's pictures of this he says he says think of it as going out in a blizzard and looking up uh, only in reverse that that's you know this is a guy that swims and dives you know scuba all the all the time okay and so you know how sometimes when you go out in a blizzard or if you're trying to drive and you literally can't see two feet in front of you yeah yeah and that's in the ocean where he's used to seeing you know. Uh, in, infinitely, practically, now in this garbage patch area, just dotted, just loaded with crap. And, uh, and of course, gross. we're going to talk about this in a future show right. uh, with an epidemiologist and talk about, because we're hearing more and more about this plastic uh, pollution and right. these plastic particles. Uh, what do they call it? Not the uh, particles, but uh, um, micro, microplastics mm-hmm. yeah. being in the air, in the water, and increasingly uh, just about everywhere. And, and I want to talk with, with medical professionals about, you know, our bodies and, and, of course, all these cancers that are coming out now. Uh, but uh, you're talking about the food supply, the food chain, and so on. And this leads us to our kind of cool section um, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, we're, we're going to be highlighting typically kindness, um, uh, acts of kindness, and so on. But um, uh, I want to highlight uh, Time. I want to echo Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. Time Magazine's Person of the Year is Greta Thunberg, the teenage climate change activist. I wish I was activist. this cool at 16. I Can really do. This girl's phenomenal. Her voice, the fact that she is putting aside her childhood and saying, I'm going to do what's right because everybody else I see that's older than me isn't. It's insane. So let's listen to Greta. And then I want to talk about uh, briefly the president's response mm-hmm. uh, and some others that uh, have had not so pleasant things to say about uh, sweet Greta. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? 
How dare you? That is so impactful. I love that girl. I love that girl. I loved her when, when she first came out. Uh, so the president says she should be at home and just sit on the couch and watch more movies. She should chill. Chill, Greta, chill. She needs to watch some good old-fashioned movies with her friends. And did you see what she did? She no. put that in her Twitter bio, that she's just a girl that is learning how to chill and currently watching movies with her friends. <laughs> I don't believe it. No, I'm, she, I'm dead she serious. Should she, chill. Put the... she should chill once in a while. Right. She certainly deserves it. But um, uh, maybe the, uh, a lot of us adults uh, have spent too much time chilling. Uh huh. And not enough time working, uh, and not enough time taking uh, the problems seriously. As the garbage uh, patch, the ocean garbage patches have grown, and this is what kills me about the sanctimonious folks on the right. Like, if you if you are not aware at this point, if you are still in denial at this point, you know where the hell have you been? Pull your head out of the polluted microplastic sand that it's in and wake up. You got fires uh, out of control in California worse than ever. You got fires in the Amazon. You know, the Amazon jungle where so many cures come from is being depleted massively year mm -hmm. after year. It's it's It ain't made up, okay? 98% of real scientists say climate change is, in fact, man-made, that we are the greatest contributor to it, our carbon footprint. And so, end the bullshit denials, get real. You know what? You think you can't learn from a 16-year-old girl? You can. I, I learned from my girls every step of the way. I learned about putting on a seatbelt from my girls because I always put them in a seatbelt. And then when they got old enough, they said, Dad, why didn't you put your seatbelt? It was not a habit that I grew up with. My parents didn't do it. They didn't put us in a seat. But I used to stand in the front of the 68 LeSabre, uh, stand up in the front seat, because I liked to stand up. And my dad would hold me when he was stopping. <laughs> so times change, and we make adjustments, and we can learn from the youngsters. And by God, we can learn from Greta. Mm -hmm. This is an incredible young woman. Uh, just like I mean, you got these courageous young people all over the, all over the world that have led, that have won awards, Nobel Peace Prize and everything else. Uh, so uh, I resent the attempts to demean this young lady. And I've seen some awful comments, even on my Facebook, when I post things about her. Uh, you know, outrageous. Uh, step back from your high horse and let's recognize uh, where we could do better. And we better start taking it seriously, whether it's the air, the water, what's going on with fracking in this country and in this state where we're injecting chemicals into the ground to get out more fossil fuels in one way or the other. And then they want to take, and we're going to have a future show about the Green New Deal. And what does the Green New Deal mean? Because we damn well better get green in this country. And if you're ignoring it, and if you're in denial, I'm with Greta. How dare you? How dare you? Because we have made a problem for future generations, and we better take responsibility to fix it. Thank you for joining us on Verge Bonero. I'll see you next Thursday.